You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike, and today I'm joined by two very special guests, Drew, once again. Hello. And Drew is the uh, original series editor over at Trek FM. Here. Here. Here at, Here Trek, at FM. Trek FM. Here. Yes. And we are also joined by the Gene Roddenberry of Trek FM, Chris Jones. How's it going, Chris? Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. And don't, don't forget to introduce our fourth person, geological technician, Fisher. Who will only be stating his rank and title every time that he's introduced. (laughs) So thanks for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate it. Uh, And then, you know, it's traditional for uh, us to sort of get an idea of of who our our new guests are. I know, Drew, you've been on the show a few times. But Chris, for those people who don't know, and I don't know how anyone who's listening to this couldn't know who you were, but just in case, what what is your uh, relationship with Star Trek? Oh, well, I have been a Star Trek fan since I was a little kid, uh, sitting in my great-grandmother's living room watching TOS reruns when they first started in the 70s, and I've just moved through all of Star Trek all my life, and and eventually came up with the crazy idea of starting Trek FM with one show, and now we've got 12, and I don't know how many people involved, so there I am. Yeah, well, we all really appreciate it, you know. <laughs> if it weren't for you, we wouldn't be here. So, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Yes. So, today we are starting a new series uh, on Richard Matheson. As most people probably know, Richard Matheson died uh, about a week or two ago, which is really unfortunate. And um, he is really kind of legendary in uh, the world of, of science fiction and, and just, you know, fiction in general, but, um, you know, he's the type of guy where, you know, something that I see again and again, you know, in these uh, obituaries and stuff like that is like, even if you don't know who he is, you're probably a fan of his stuff because he's done everything. And when we were trying to narrow it down for this series, we had a really hard time coming up with an angle to to approach him with because, he, you know, it's not like he did a couple of shows or a couple of movies, which were pretty good. He did, like, literally dozens of everything. Uh, just to give an idea, for people who don't know who Matheson is, uh, some of his other work includes I Am Legend, uh, Twilight Zone. He wrote 16 episodes of that. Uh, Duel, Steven Spielberg's first movie. Uh, Real Steel was based on one of his uh, short stories. Somewhere in Time, Stir of Echoes. What Dreams May Come, and he's also the writer of Jaws 3D, which I know is everyone's yes. favorite. Yes. It's my favorite. So, uh, Drew, are you, are you uh, familiar with Matheson's work? Well, not particularly. I've, uh, I've seen the newest I Am Legend uh, adaptation, the one with uh, Will Wiki Wiki Smith. But uh, other than that, I didn't. I, I even read his Wikipedia. I'm like, I certainly have seen these things. No, I haven't. I somehow missed that he wrote Jaws 3. So, uh, but that's one of my favorite bad movies. So I'm I'm excited that, but you're not going with that angle, I don't think. No, so we're not going to be covering Jaws 3D. I, I apologize. Uh, 
Maybe next time. It's fine. <laughs> Drew really you? thought he was coming on to discuss Jaws 3D. Yeah, I don't. I don't what are we talking about? <laughs> what about you, Chris? Are you a fan? I'm not sure if I would say I'm a fan per se because I'm not really into horror genre, and you know he does tend to skew towards the horror side. But I'm familiar, of course, with the Enemy Within, the original series episode, uh, Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, the very classic Twilight Zone episode, and. The thing is that some of his work that I saw, I saw at a younger age when I wasn't really yet at a point where I paid attention to who was writing particular stories. You know, that, of course, was the case with The Enemy Within, which I saw as, I don't know, like a six or seven-year-old, maybe five-year-old. But the first time I remember reading something that was definitely Richard Matheson would be Born of Men and Woman, the short story, which I guess was probably his first sell as a science fiction writer and it's a really creepy story but you know it's one of those classics that finds its way into science fiction anthologies and that's how I encountered it for the first time yeah for me uh, you know I'm, I'm kind of in the same uh, boat as you guys you know I, I'm really familiar with his Twilight Zone stuff and I think that that stuff is amazing and I've seen uh, you know a lot of the movies that uh, his work is based on and, and stuff you know I Am Legend which I, I was quite fond of um, Real Steel and The Box, you know, which I was less fond of, but still interesting. Um, but I, I am excited uh, to kind of become more familiar with his work through this series. So uh, it's exciting for me. Um, but today we are going to talk about his work on Star Trek, which uh, was one episode, um, but a quite important episode in, in some in some respects. It was a uh, the sixth episode of the show, or the fifth episode, depending on how you count, The Enemy Within. Chris, what are your thoughts on The Enemy Within? <laughs> well, you know, I was just watching this, even before you asked me to come on the show and talk about it. I- I'm doing a rewatch of the entire franchise right now, and I just finished Enterprise, and now I'm into the original series. And so about a week before Matheson passed away, because he passed away on the 23rd of June, I had watched this episode, and I remember tweeting or posting to get Gluer somewhere that it's the enemy within another acting showcase for William Shatner. <laughs> and this is, it's an over-the-top episode. It's a very interesting story, and it's very much in line with the message of the original series. The message about... Uh, you know, your good side and your bad side and how they play into you as a person, it's right out there. You know, they're not <laughs> covering it up with anything, which is very common of TOS. So I think it works really well as a TOS episode. And and in terms of giving Shatner some material to work with and just be classic Shatner, there are very few TOS episodes that are as perfect as this one in that respect. What about you, Drew? Are you a fan of The Enemy Within? I, I am. I I hadn't really paid much attention to it before because we haven't really covered it on on other Trek FM shows. But I I'm familiar enough with it. It's you know it's one with the dog and the dog gets poor dog gets split in two. But and <laughs> Drew remembers the dog. And, well, because that making of Star Trek book that came out in the '60s. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had it growing up, and it's got a picture of Kirk holding the dog, and so yeah. that was one of the one of the you know, 60 pictures of Star Trek that I was really familiar with. Right, yeah. Um, 
but I, I watched it tonight with the with the mindset of this guy wrote a whole bunch of Twilight Zone, so I was trying to watch it for the the creepy kind of of Twilight Zoney vibe, and you could really get it. And the score, I, I also uh, read that this was like one of the only episodes to have its own score and doesn't use any of the pre-programmed incidental music. And like, you can tell it's really appropriate to the things that are happening on the screen. And so it's a really well put together episode, especially for being like the fifth episode. Things are, except for shuttlecrafts, things are very nailed down in regards to how the ship works and who's in command and who Kirk, Spock and McCoy are and how they interplay which I'm always impressed with. Some of the best episodes where they all mesh together the best are the first few. It's it's really well done. Yeah, that's true. There are um, like a few things here and there where you can tell they hadn't quite figured it out yet, like the captain's logs, you know, were a little um, fourth wally and, and stuff. But um, <laughs> but the important things, like the characters, you know, that that was was a pretty pretty damn solid and um i i like this episode a lot too i'm always like if whenever i do a, a rewatch of the original series when when this episode comes up for some reason i always think it's later in the show and when it comes up at number six i'm like what already oh great you know yeah. i've been looking forward to this and um yeah i agree it's kind of a shame in the sense that uh matheson didn't write any more because i think the stuff that he brought to this one was amazing and if he would have had a chance to sort of like build on that in the series maybe built on what he had had come up with you know here i mean as good as the original series is i think it would have been an even better show um but but yeah i am very fond of the episode uh you know anyone who knows me knows that i am a huge fan of william shatner i think that i mean he's one of my favorite actors and not in an ironic way i think that he's amazing <laughs> you know i don't understand why that guy isn't cast in like every Scorsese movie or anything like that. I really don't. And I think that uh, this is one of his best performances. It's silly and over the top and crazy, but it is spot on. You know, it's exactly Mm. what he should be doing for this. I think it shows Shatner's diversity as an actor, because if you take like the scene of him walking down the corridor with the Saurian brandy and guzzling the brandy and the look on his face and the demeanor. And it's so opposite what he normally does as Kirk. And if you just think about other actors trying to pull off, especially in the same episode where they have to go back and forth and back and forth in demeanor like that, it's, um, it is over the top, like you said, but at the same time, it's really not an easy thing to do. What I think is great is that it's not like a mirror universe thing where you, uh, uh, there's a good, there's regular Kirk and then there's evil Kirk. I mean, Shatner has to play regular Kirk and he has to play, uh, good, you know, like light Kirk and he has to play dark Kirk. And, and I think he does really well with the, the, not just playing the light Kirk. I don't know, I don't want to call him good and evil. But the light side of Kirk, he plays him differently than he would as normal. And I I feel that some actors would just go and be like, okay, the good side. Well, I'm a good person, so I'll just be the good side playing myself. And and Shatner seemed to understand that he needed to be a lot more timid and more back. And you can sometimes even tell at a glance which one you're looking at without paying attention to the scratches or the uniforms. 
And I like that. I like that a lot. And, you know, like what you were saying, Chris, about how it would be hard for other people to pull it off. Like I was thinking about, you know, just like the other captains, like would, you know, um, Patrick Stewart be able to pull this off? And it's like, well, yeah, of course he could. But would he be as good as Shatner? I really don't think so. I think it, it takes like a specific kind of actor to do this. And he, you know, everyone, you know, points to, you know, the whole... I mean, like the first time you—I think it's the first time you see the the evil Kirk, you know, and, and his performance there, and how, you know they—it's like ham and cheese. <laughs> the makeup makes the difference, <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's not. I mean, it's he's it's that's a like a to me, I would say nuanced performance, you know, a very nuanced yeah. performance, and I know that might sound ridiculous in in, in this context, but. I mean, I, I was just sitting there riveted by, by his performance when I was watching this the other day. Well, one of the things which, which I, I find to be really interesting about this is that, you know, Richard Matheson also wrote uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is uh, the very classic Twilight Zone episode, which featured William Shatner, where he plays a guy who's terrified of flying. He had a nervous breakdown on a plane, and now... Um, He's getting back onto a plane for the first time, and he looks out and he sees that there is a creature on the wing of the plane. But every time he tries to show it to someone, the creature, you know, moves away. Right. So it's this it's this character who isn't sure whether or not he's going crazy, you know, but feels like he needs to do something, or else you know they may all die. Right. And uh, probably my favorite episode of the Twilight Zone, or one of you know top top five for sure have you guys seen that episode i know chris you said you have have you seen it drew i'm not sure i think that i have just to see i'm sure Shatner. you have seen it at some point but i in the i past, am yeah. f- more familiar with the version that they did for the twilight zone movie well definitely check out nightmare at Twenty Thousand feet drew it, it is amazing and shatner's performance in it is also amazing and you know in thinking about that and watching that and everything i was like you know, two of Shatner's very best performances of all time, you know, especially in the early part of his career, came from Richard Matheson's screenplays. And I don't know if either of those were written for Shatner. I'm guessing I'm guessing Nightmare at 20,000 Feet was not, and I don't know. I guess by that point he probably would have been cast for Star Trek, right? But um, I think there's something about Matheson's uh, writing style which... Uh, is like the perfect fit for Shatner, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know the, well, let's see, the production timeline. The final draft of this episode was written uh, June 6, 1966. But the idea for it, I'm sure, was in Matheson's head for a long time before this. So I don't know if he would have really written this for William Shatner per se. And I can certainly see this as being a Richard Matheson story a piece of literature where it would have been a lot darker even than it was here. So, But it also plays into Star Trek very well, you know, the whole right, transporter yeah. accident. I mean, Matheson yeah. invented the transporter accident. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but, like, it's a story that, that really, outside of Twilight Zone, can't be told on television. Yeah, well, you need to lay a lot of groundwork to, to tell that story and, you know, having the transporter there. And I wonder if that's a case of, like, you know, Matheson getting the, the show Bible and them saying, you know, reading, like, oh, there's this thing called a transporter, and he's like, well, let me mess around with that. I don't know. I mean, that would make sense, you know? That would make sense. I, I, I suspect that he had the idea for the story 
of somehow a person being split into their light and their dark sides. And then when he wrote it for Star Trek, oh, here is a device that can actually make this happen. But it's so just perfect guessing. because it, it works because Spock is two conflicting sides and he's the one who like convinces Kirk that he needs both sides. It's like if he had this written in his head before Star Trek existed, he must have been like flipping through the story bible like ooh ooh I can split him like this and ooh this character <laughs> he's he's split that's pretty cool and well cl- clearly the story was was crafted for Star Trek. Um, the seeds okay. of the story. Was I, it done better in faces? <laughs> well, that's something I was thinking about when we were talking earlier that, you know, Star Trek, they do revisit this again with Bellana and Voyager in faces. And I don't know, you know, it's, I, I mean, I think the enemy within makes a stronger point because what yes. they, this is all about what it takes to be a strong individual and a leader, whereas with Balana, they're really just talking about how Balana is weak without her Klingon side, and she's strong with her uh, Klingon That's side true. in place. Her but, human side doesn't have many uh, positive yeah. qualities, which they go out of their way to point out that that Light Kirk has courage. Right, yeah. I think that this episode does a much better job of driving home that message because you're not going out there and mixing a human and Klingon side. You're talking, this is all within each of us. It's all about humans. It's all about what's inside of each of us. And like you said, uh, they do point out the strengths of the light side. And basically they say, you know, strength comes from your dark side, but without the light side, our terminology is a little bit strange here, but without the light side... (laughs) There's no control for it, you know, it's just out of control. So there's no way that it could exist without the light side to to channel that energy and channel that strength. At the same time, without the strength that comes from the dark side, you know, you're gonna just live an ordinary life, as Admiral Pike would say, as Captain Pike would say at the time, I guess. Um, because you, you have to have that other side. So this works better for me than faces, yeah. Yeah, this works better for me, too, for a, a lot of reasons. I mean, one, you know, like you guys were saying, you're dealing with a human instead of like a human-alien hybrid thing. Two, you know, it's like you've got humans and you've got Klingons, and both of them are fine. And, you know, that was sort of like an internal struggle to this one person dealing with, you know, two sides of herself but they were in a sense kind of like two made up sides in terms of you know reality whereas you know with Kirk I mean that's something that you know literally everyone has to deal with and it's also um, a a case with Kirk where um, if you did get rid of one you know like like with Balana, if you have just a Klingon or just a human independently you know, she she would learn to live with that. You know, it, it would be tough, but yeah. whatever, she'd get over it. But with Kirk, I mean, if you lose one of those two halves, that there's no, I mean, you can't function. You know, you really can't. Um, it may be a little more uh, outlandish here than in the uh, in, in faces, but I think it it works a lot better as a story. And I also just think it's better written and better produced as well. You know, there's a lot more um, 
kind of showing instead of telling in this one, you know, and on Voyager and, and really all sort of next generation era Star Trek, there's a lot of sitting around talking about what's going on. We're here. Mm-hmm. You actually see it in action, which is good for, you know, a, a movie or a TV You didn't show. want them to get good Kirk and evil Kirk together and have a staff meeting? <laughs> One thing which I, I found, I didn't really find much uh, info on the, the history of this episode. I, I know you guys probably have more than, than me. Um, but one thing which I did find that was rather interesting was that uh, Matheson did not write the, the B-plot of Sulu and, and company stuck on the planet. And I, I read like a quote from him. Um, I, it was on Memory Alpha, but it came from, I think, one of those Academy uh, of Television interview thingies where he was saying, like, you know, B-plots tend to be stupid. You know, like, he, he, they just take away from the story. You know, he, and he said that in his version, he never left Kirk. It was all about Kirk. And mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways, that makes sense to me. What do you guys think about uh, the inclusion of the B-plot? How do you think it would have worked without the B-plot, etc.? Well, without the B-plot, there wouldn't be much sense of urgency. And like, and they keep having to bring it up. Like, uh, Light Kirk is just sitting there, like, "Well, I don't know. Maybe we'll wait and we'll do the autopsy on the dog." And they're like, well, "What about Sulu?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, Sulu. We should do something about that." Uh, without it, it would be kind of a, it would be more of a slow character study. Yeah. You know, let's eventually see if we can put these people back together. But having, having to get the transporter fixed and making sure that it works. And testing it on the captain before you test it on, you know, the helmsman and the three other people. We don't even know their names down there. It It is a big deal. I, I think that if this were written as a short story or a novella by Matheson, he could focus only on Kirk and it would work because you could really, really explore the inner mind of Kirk, of both Kirks and what's going on a little bit more. I think on television, you need this B-plot there needs to be something to drive the action forward, to drive them towards a solution, because otherwise they could just drag it out. You know, Spock could say, well, if we can just kind of, if we can keep this bad Kirk, you know, pinned into this section of the ship for a couple of weeks, I think Bones can find a solution to this. And as far as Matheson's like general feeling towards B-plots, I don't, I, I get his point in some situations, there are definitely Star Trek episodes where you say, please just focus on your main story. <laughs> but at the same time, there are lots of episodes where you really, really need a B story or else you're going to end up with 20 minutes worth of story that may still not really quite work for you without it, some kind of interplay. If you can masterfully uh, create an interplay between the A story and the B story, then you have a really great episode. But now that's another thing which is kind of interesting, you know, something which you see a, a lot, uh, it seems like, with uh, the early episodes of, of the original series where they had these really high-profile sci-fi writers coming on and writing episodes and then leaving. And in at least, well, the two instances that I know of, both both times the writers were somewhat happy or somewhat unhappy with the rewrites or very unhappy with the rewrites, depending on <laughs> the situation. And <laughs> yeah. um, I think that there's kind of a weird balance there between 
you know, the idea of someone trying to tell the best story that they can tell and someone trying to tell a story which is part of a larger whole, you know? How, how do you think... Uh, well, and also there's a, there's a big difference between writing science fiction literature and writing science fiction television. And when you bring people in like... Harlan Ellison, who you're talking about being very unhappy. <laughs> what? I don't know what you're rewrites. talking about. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> you know, Richard Matheson, uh, Norman Spinrad, people like this who came on and wrote for TOS, they are accustomed to having more control over the story and the way it unfolds. They're writing short stories. They're writing novels. It's their work. And of course, they have an editor. But the editor is writing. They're still editing for pace of literature not for television and naturally someone like that coming in and writing for a television series is going to butt heads with the people who are accustomed to cutting up scripts to meet time requirements of television as well as and it's not so much an issue in early tos but of course it is later on and as you get into the later Star Trek series of this story having to fit into the series itself as opposed to just being a standalone story. So that's always a big problem. But it also reminds me, you know, I'm I'm a professional designer and so in the creative fields, especially when you work with uh, illustrators who are artists and they really want their work to be the way they see it. And often when they're illustrating for a project that is more of a marketing nature, you know, it's part of a marketing campaign, for example, a lot of people are going to get their hands on that and they're going to want to make changes because the original artistic vision, while it's beautiful as a piece of art, it doesn't necessarily meet the needs of the final product. And so there's a lot of butting heads that goes on there in creative work uh, when it comes to design. And this reminds me exactly of that, except with the writing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I guess maybe it's unfair to compare this to City on the Edge of Forever and that, you know, I think with, with this situation, it was more of a, just a difference in terms of like, creatively, how do you tell a story? And when it comes to that, and there, there's a difference of opinion, I think that, you know, obviously Roddenberry has to have the, the final say because it's his show, you know. Um, with the Ellison situation, I think it's a, a little different in that um, the way that he, I mean, at least the way that I see it, is his script had basically like a different characterization than Roddenberry's intention was for Kirk in particular. And if you do, you know, while, you know, you look at those two scripts, you know, I, I can say like on paper, you know, just like if you take them as their own thing, Ellison's is the better script. You know, which, which one is more true to the series? That's the the one that aired, and again, that was the right choice. But, I mean, it, it's, I don't know, it's got to be difficult. I, I don't envy uh, Roddenberry or, or Gene Kuhn or any of those guys who had to deal with this. I mean, you're trying to get, you know, the best talent that you possibly can in to write this show, but at the same time, they're also going to be very... Uh, stubborn with their opinions which is probably why they're the best but the end result i think was excellent in both cases uh do you guys have any final thoughts on the enemy within well i think for um like i said before earlier uh 
some of the best episodes of Star Trek are the first few. Uh, they just seem to immediately gotten the characters right. And, uh, it was before they started just trying to fill time uh, with you know weird random episodes. I think this is well written, well acted, uh, definitely in the top ten. All right. What about you, Chris? Often I think about a modern audience watching the original series because my wife, for example, my wife's not a Trekkie by any stretch of the imagination, but she has seen all of DS9 and all of Voyager. A little bit of Enterprise, part of the next generation. She will not watch the original series. Absolutely refuses to watch the original series. And a lot of it is because of the acting, the set design, just it feels very, very old to her. And I think that sometimes for a modern audience that the way that the messages about social issues and moral issues or ethics or, you know, just about ourselves in the case of this episode are presented are a little bit heavy handed. And I think in this episode, it definitely especially at the end of the episode when they really deliver exactly what's going on to the audience. It is kind of heavy handed for me. I like it because, you know, I mean, that's Star Trek. It's the original series. It's what got me interested in Star Trek in the first place. And then my tastes became a little more nuanced in terms of how I like stories to be told, which is why I like DS nine best of the series. But this works really well as TOS and it as as you guys have been saying, the fact that this is the fifth episode and the characters all feel so right in this episode and everything about the show feels so right. Like you, Mike, when I think about this episode, I almost think that it's like a season two episode because it feels like everything has developed that long, you know, into the 30s in, in episode count. So it it's a, a great TOS episode and Shatner is just, brilliant in this episode I, I can see many people as i talk about the modern audience watching this and thinking that it's cheesy and that shatner is just completely over the top just i don't know light years beyond being over the top in some of his <laughs> acting here but i don't see it that way you know i see it as he really understands the material i mean drew you had a great point earlier about with the light kirk you can really just looking at him, he doesn't have to speak. You can tell Shatner is playing the weakness of Kirk without that dark side, just in, in his demeanor. And and that's brilliant. So, And you can definitely see Matheson in here. And Drew, like you said, for anyone who hasn't done it, go watch this episode again if you're familiar with The Twilight Zone and watch it as a Twilight Zone episode. And it's a way for you to really see the enemy within in a, a different way than you've ever seen it before. I agree with you guys that it is a really good episode. Um, and uh, one of the things which I think makes it so is, uh, no pun intended, I didn't mean to say that, is uh, William Shatner's performance, uh, which I think is excellent. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, Matheson's script. You know, it, 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 this is the type of thing that Shatner could be doing on a regular basis if he was given material that was this good and this specific to him. So uh, for that, you know, I really appreciate it. Um, So what we're going to be doing uh, in this series with Richard Matheson, um, like we were saying before, it was really hard to kind of come up with an angle um, because he has done 
everything. He has written so many novels and short stories and movies and TV shows that there's really no way to boil it down to uh, something which is manageable. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at his novels that were turned into movies. And each week we're going to uh, cover the novel and the adaptation, or in some cases adaptations, and see how, you know, uh, they compare to one another. And uh, even with that, even being that specific, just novels that were turned into movies, there's still eight of them. So we're going to... We're going to have a lot of Matheson over the next couple months, but it should be fun. Is this going to be I'm, a 12-part series? It's going to be a 10-part <laughs> series. <laughs> but, uh, I was close. <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it, it should be fun, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So, uh, Drew, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, and they can find me on uh, The Ready Room on the, the TOS episodes. And, and I think that that's about it for now. All right. What about you, Chris? Well, you can, you, know, you can find me all over the place on the network. You can find me every week on The Ready Room. We talk about all the Star Trek series. Of course, Drew is there with us for TOS episodes. Mike, you've been on there with us a few times as well. And uh, you can also find me with Matthew Rushing. We do two shows. We do The Orb, where we talk about Deep Space Nine only. And we do literary treks where we talk about Star Trek books and comics and we interview authors. And that's a, a very interesting, different angle on Star Trek. And, uh, and now you can find me on our new show, Warp 5, with Kate Walsh, where we talk about Enterprise every week. So I'm, I'm trying to catch up with Jeffrey Combs. I'm trying to be everywhere. <laughs> and then you can find me on Twitter. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. Yeah, as someone who does two podcasts a week, I really have no idea how you do 75 of them, but I'm very impressed. <laughs> so, um, as always, you can find us um, on Trek FM or on our website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, where we do our other show. And you can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars or email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. And we will be back next week to talk about Richard Matheson's very first novel, Someone is Bleeding, along with the 1974 French film adaptation, Icy Breasts. <laughs> <laughs>